Paul is now in Caesarea. And if you remember, last week we saw how God provided 470 Roman soldiers for Paul's safe travel from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which is where he needed to go if he was going to go to Rome. Because Caesarea was the, one of the greatest ports in the, at that time. Second only to Alexandria. It was built by Herod the Great. And even though these 40 men, like Mike re- referenced, swore an oath to eat, not eat or drink until they killed Paul, God protected him. Now think about that. If somebody told you, Mike, 40 men here in Jacksonville said they're going to not eat or drink until they kill you, you're going to die. You're going to die. You'd be a little concerned about that, right? You'd be concerned if it was one guy. <laughs> 40 guys? And so God took care of him. And because Jesus had told Paul the night before, listen, Paul, be strong. Take courage. You're going to go to Rome and tell them the same thing you've been telling people here. So God told him that. Jesus did in a vision. And He told him he would be okay because He demonstrates His care for us all the time as part of His plan. Does that mean God's kids don't die? No. No, I believe that pastor's daughter is probably in the arms of Jesus right now. Bad things happen to good people, but it means that God cares for us as we fulfill His plan for our life. And then when that plan is done, He brings us home. This is not our home. Never has been our home. Do we get kind of confused about that sometimes? Start thinking this is our home here? You can. We, you know, we, we saw how God demonstrated His care for Paul last week through His supernatural providence. And we, if you remember, I used the story of Esther from the Old Testament because it was very similar to what was going on with Paul. God's not mentioned, but He's the main character. He provides, just like with Esther, for God's people. Imagine if Haman had wiped out every Jew. What does that do to God's Word? It destroys it because no Messiah from God's people. No Messiah from the line of Abraham, from the, from the line of David, I'm sorry, from the line of David. No Messiah there from, from the tribe of Judah. And so God's plan was fulfilled and we see His providence fulfilling that plan. But we also, God saw His um, care because His plan always rules. So, guys, when you want to do something really, really bad, I mean, it's on your bucket list or it's part of your priorities for your life, whatever it is, and it just doesn't happen. Who's in control of that? He's sovereign. His plan can't be thwarted. So, if He closes a door, He's probably not wanting you to walk through it. That doesn't necessarily mean He doesn't want to walk through it. It may just be that He doesn't want you to walk through it at that time. But it may mean that He doesn't want you to walk through it at all. But His plan is unstoppable. Think about it. Rome mobilized 470 troops for one guy to get him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Why? Because he was supposed to go to Rome. And uh, the other thing is because God wanted him to testify in Caesarea. 
even though he'd already been there with Philip, he wanted him to go in front of Felix, who was the governor, which was a big deal. So even though Paul had gone through all these difficult times, God continued to provide all that he needed. And here's the key part of the phrase for all that God wanted him to do. That's the thing we got to keep in mind. God will provide everything for you and me that we need to do what He wants us to do. So, if He doesn't want us to do it, then He ain't going to provide for it. Do we sometimes try to do things God doesn't want us to do? <laughs> yes. I've done that quite a few times, actually. But this week, we're looking at chapter 24. We're going to cover the whole chapter. Because really, guys, chapter the end of 22, 23... And 24 really has just really one message through it all. And it's just that God cares through it all. He cares and His providence rules through all of Paul's journey here. So we're going to look at the whole chapter. And what we're going to see is God continues to demonstrate His care by the lengths He will go to for people, first of all, to hear the gospel. Because I'm going to tell you, Felix was one nasty guy. The governor of Judea at that time, he was in the same position that Pontius Pilate was in. He ruled over that area. He had the authority uh, to crucify people, and he did. He crucified a lot of people. But what you don't know about Felix probably is that he was a slave who became a governor. But uh, one Tacitus, I think it was, said he ruled like a slave. He didn't rule like a good leader. And so we're going to see what length God goes to to get the gospel in front of him and how he responds. And the other thing we're going to see is how God disciplines his children. And it's love that causes that. Discipline's not a bad thing. You know, when I was growing up, I, I've shared this with you guys before. My dad had this huge, huge, huge... I mean, when you're a kid, it seems like massive, right? But I mean, like, I can promise you, I spent hours and hours and hours working this garden. We grew everything that we ate. Uh, we, grew, we grew it, or we shot it, or we caught it. I mean, that was it. That's the thing. That's how, how our freezer was full. We'd go fill up our freezer through our own, you know, vegetables and stuff we'd grow. But I remember working that field. I hated that. I mean, it was, it, it was long. I mean, and we had a horse-driven um, plow that we plowed it up with. And me and my brother would have to go out there and, and pick the weeds out, we'd have to do all the fertilizer, all the things you had to do stuff. And I hated it. I hated it when I was doing it. But you know what? Looking back on all those things, it gave me a good work ethic. And I thanked my dad numerous times because of the work ethic he instilled in me. I got to see what hard work does. Right? I got to see what it produced. I got to eat of it. Most kids today think vegetables come from a grocery store. They don't know how they're grown. They've never worked a day in their life to get something like that. 
But when you do that and then you eat it and you see if you don't get rain, it doesn't, you know, you got to have rain, you got to keep the bugs off. There's a lot of work involved in eating that one little green bean, <laughs> you know? It's true, or the corn, whatever it is. So God disciplines me and you. And at the time, we don't like it, but it's for greater purposes down the road. And so as we look at these um, verses today, I want you to think about these two, two ideas, that God reveals His care through His commitment to the declaration of the Gospel. Have you ever thought about that? How much He cares for you? How many times have you heard the Gospel, Jeff? You can't even count them, can you? Do you know what a gracious act of God that is that we take for granted? Because, I mean, it's not just hearing the Gospel to then come into the family of God. Even before you do that, you hear it numerous times. But even after we are reminded that it's not our works, it's His grace. We're reminded it's not what we do, it's what He did. We're reminded that God loves us so much He would allow His Son to be crucified on a cross. And so when we lose a daughter because some, uh, some radical comes in and kills her, we know that that doesn't mean God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that at all. Because He's proved His love to us by showing that one... We understand the Gospel. We've heard the Gospel. We've heard it many times. And so we're going to see that. And the second thing God reveals that He loves is through His commitment to the development of godly trust. He wants us to trust Him. And sometimes the development of that trust is painful. And we're going to see that as we go through this. So all 27 verses... (laughs) Hang on, because we're going to kind of rip through this to get through it today. I hope hope we can get through it. So uh, we're going to start in verse 1, and then we're going to... Actually, you know what? Today, uh, instead of me just reading it all, we'll just kind of work through this, okay? We'll work through it. So starting in verse 1, all right, and after five days... This is after they brought him to Caesarea. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him by examining him yourself you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. I'll go on to verse uh, 9. The Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. 
So, verse 1. You got Ananias, some elders, and this guy named Tertullus. Tertullus was a paid professional. He was an attorney. No offense, Dave. But he was a guy who was a professional at presenting cases. And so they bring him with him, and it says what? It says the high priest, they came down. Jerusalem's high. You go up to Jerusalem. Anytime you go away from Jerusalem in Israel, you go down. And so that's why it says they came down. They came down to Caesarea. And when they got there, um, Tertullus goes in and he starts buttering Felix up. You know what this is? It's flattery. It was very common. Why would they flatter? Well, uh, flattery is a calculated non-truth for advantage. That's, I mean, that's my own definition. I just kind of made that up, but that's what it is. I mean, if, uh, it's probably going to be pretty similar in, if you go look at something in Merriam-Webster or whatever, but it's a calculated non-truth for advantage. Wow, you look good today, Cleet. Hey, can you give me a loan? Do we do that? Do we? Should we? We should never flatter. Listen to what Proverbs 26 says. 26-28 A lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. That's Proverbs 26-28. Also, Psalm 12 verse 3. 12 verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Okay. The tongue that makes great boast. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. We shouldn't flatter at all. But that's what Tertullus does. And he he lays out these charges in verses 3 and 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. One, he's this is a guy who starts riots. He's recruiting. The, the indication there is he says he makes trouble for the Jews in all the world, but it, the indication there is he's, he's recruiting and trying to start a rebellion against Rome. So Paul led a rebellion against Rome, charge one. Second, he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He led a rebellion against Israel. They viewed the Nazarenes as followers of Jesus from Nazareth. And it was a rogue religion. It was not true Judaism. And so they said, he's against Israel. He led a rebellion against Israel. <clears throat> Did Rome give Israel the ability to kill people that defile the temple? Yes, they did. They did. They had a sign in the temple. It was They gave them permission. If you defiled the temple, they had the ability to kill somebody. And that's why Pilate said, hey, you, have, you, you go take him and kill him. But see, Jesus didn't defile the temple. There, that wasn't the charge against Jesus. The charge against Jesus was what? He said He was God. He said He was the Son of God. What was the charge against Paul? He led a rebellion against Rome, so that was a legal charge that he violated Roman law. That perked up Felix's ear. Then they said he has also been a ringleader of the this Nazarenes 
Now, it says later that he was very familiar with the way. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he was referring to that. But does the fact that he, Jesus, I'm sorry, that Paul violated anything to do with Israel other than defiling the temple give Felix the right to kill Paul as a Roman citizen or even imprison him? Does it? No. It doesn't. But that's their charge. And then the third charge is that he's profaned the temple. He's profaned. It's, it's not quite as bad as defiling, but it's like it's still a charge. But they're saying he did something against God. So they're saying he led a rebellion against Rome, a rebellion against Israel, and actually a rebellion against God. Yeah. Well, that's what Tertullus and, is saying. And it, right. It, but it's, but he, he, he was also our problem, and we were ready, willing, and able to deal with our problem, and your soldiers came in. Lysias came in, and one, in fact, that's even added in one version, like the, it may be added in, in some, you may see a footnote where it's added. That was added later. They feel like for clarification, where maybe they're saying, we had this under control, and Lysias came in and did it. But my point in all of it, out of all those charges, the only one that would have merit in front of Felix is the first one. The other two, unless he, unless he violated the law that they said you can kill somebody by, by, bring, by going into the temple as a Gentile, did Paul do that? No, he couldn't violate that. He was not a Gentile. Even though he was a Roman citizen, he was a Jew. So he couldn't even be stoned for what Trophimus did. Trophimus would have been killed for that. So there's really one charge against Paul. It's sedition. That, even though they bring all these charges. So that's what, what's going on. And here's what's interesting, guys. If you look all through Acts in every trial, in, in the apostles' trial, when they're before the Sanhedrin, when they're before everybody, the charges they make against them... Uh, and Paul's, all his, they're all given a lot of incredible detail. Why? you got to ask, why would Luke go to the trouble of, of laying out all these things said? Why does he put a letter from Claudius Lysias that says, I find nothing wrong in this man? Why do we see such detail in this uh, trial here, the one before Herod, and the one before uh, Festus? In all the cases, what do all these leaders say? What do all the judges say about them? Say it, David. There's nothing here. There's nothing wrong with these. These, these guys did nothing wrong. You know why? Because Christianity has always been accused and feared as a group of insurrectionists by leaders. Whether it's Mao Zedong, whether it's Joseph Stalin, they've always feared people who believe in a one true living God who would send a son to die for them and those people feel more loyalty to that God than their government. That's always been a fear. And so, and it goes all the way back here, there was a fear. But Luke lays it out 
so that he wants people to know Christians are not insurrectionists. They're not. Unless, the, the only reason we would ever rebel against government authority is if they tell us to do something the Bible says not to do. But Rome had given them freedom to do stuff and Paul wasn't an insurrectionist. He wasn't telling people to go against Caesar. Did Jesus do that? He said, give to Caesar what Caesar's. And so, the Jews, Ananias and the elders go, yeah, what he said. <laughs> After Tertullus gets through saying it, yeah, what he said. So, let's look at verses 10 now through uh, 26. Going back to Acts 24. Acts 24. We're going to pick it up at verse 10. Okay? And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Paul's saying, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't stirring up. I'm not recruiting for a rebellion. I wasn't doing that. I've only been in town for 12 days. Seven of those days, guess what? I was fulfilling a vow. I was being purified at the temple, he's going to go on to say. And what's been going on for the last five days? What's been happening? He's been in jail. So how could I lead a rebellion? That's what he's, what he's saying. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. That's why I came to Jerusalem to bring a gift and to worship God, not to create a rebellion against Rome is what he's saying. Now while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood up before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is respect with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but should have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go, go away for the present time. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So Paul starts his defense by saying, listen, you've been around a long time, Felix. You've been in our country. You know our rules. You know the way things work. I know you're going to give me a fair trial. Is that flattery? No. That's the truth. He's just saying, I know you're going to make... I'm, I know, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. You've been around a while. You know the Jewish law. I believe you're going to give me a fair trial. And then Paul spoke. He didn't have a lawyer. He didn't have anybody represent him. Or did he? Did he have somebody represent him? Oh yeah. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete that comes alongside of you. He came along. What did Jesus say in Matthew 10, 16-20? Don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll be with you. You just go, and I'll put the words on your mouth. And He did. And so Paul goes in here and says, I was in Jerusalem to worship. I was only in Jerusalem seven days. How do you start an insurrection when you're only around for seven days? I've been gone for years. I've been going out and in of Jerusalem, but I've only, I was only there for seven days, and while I was there, I was being purified, he says. It's a pretty good defense, actually. He says, I did nothing wrong. And you remember back from Acts 21, that's what we read. He was purified. He was, he was trying to take care of, of those things, that vow. He says, they can't prove anything. By the way, do you know Paul probably other than his personal evangelism, he didn't do any public evangelism that we know of in Jerusalem when he came back. Think about that. Why? It wasn't his territory. Where did God tell him he was going to send him? To the Gentiles. What did God say to Paul about Jerusalem when he was there in the temple the first time? And he had the vision. What did he tell him? Remember? They will not what? They're not going to listen to you. So Paul was relieved of that, even though his heart broke for his people. Paul wasn't going to stir up anything. He wasn't going to go back there and do a big outreach crusade in Jerusalem. And so he says, I did nothing wrong. They can't even prove anything. And he goes, other than this, he goes, I worship the same God they worship. He goes, in verse 14, he tells them, I do confess this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. He's saying, I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Romans 4, when he wrote Romans, he talked about Abraham. Paul never, Paul never went away from his roots. He worshiped the God of his fathers. True Judaism is belief in Jesus as Messiah. But they had gone away from that. You see, if Abraham had lived when Paul lived, he would have been a follower of Jesus Christ because he was a true Jew. You're not a Jew just because you come from the blood of Abraham. You're a Jew because you come from the same faith as Abraham, Paul says later. Do you find it ironic that Jesus was not... 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, just my thought. Yeah. So he wasn't this military leader that was no. But so that purportedly is what the Jews, the Jewish leadership wanted, but they really didn't want it. They use it against Paul and against Jesus. These guys are here to promote an insurrection against Rome. Which is what the Jews wanted. Yeah, they want. Well, you're right. They they wanted. They were were the ones who really wanted the insurrection, and that's what they're accusing Paul of. Um, And and but Paul, get this. He's saying, I believe in the same God as they profess. He also says, I believe in the same truth. He says, what? I believe in the law, and I believe in the prophets. Because all the Bible points to Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus. Except, remember what Jesus said in John 5.39? You search the Scriptures, but you don't see Me in them. Remember that? You think you find truth just in the facts of the Scriptures, but the Scriptures point to Me. And then He says, I believe in the same hope of death and life again after death, and then a judgment. They, if the Pharisees believe that, this is true Judaism. Second Peter three talks about there's going to be a judgment one day, and he says in verse sixteen, "I strive for a good conscience before God and before man. My teaching is biblical." This is what he's saying. He makes a great defense. He said, "When I came to Jerusalem, I came to bring money to the poor people and to worship God. That's the only reason I came back to Jerusalem. It wasn't to start a riot. These men found me obeying God. I was doing the things God wanted me to do, and there was no problem except for these Jews from Asia. And by the way, they should be here because by law they should be the ones bringing the charges. You, if they can't be here." You should bring the charges. He's kind of pointing out to the high priest and the, the other uh, elders there. You should be saying, not Tertullus, not some paid professional. These men have no charges except this, he says. I believe the gospel, the hope of our fathers. They're just upset that I preach Jesus. This is what Paul's saying. Let them say what I did wrong. And what did they say, guys? Nothing. They said nothing. The only thing they can accuse Paul of is making an issue of the resurrection. It is a theological issue, not a legal issue. And a Roman judge can't make a legal issue out of a spiritual issue for a Roman citizen. So the only possible judgment he has is that he's innocent. But it says in verse 22, Felix had a... uh, um, understanding of the way. He knew what the gospel was he, that was proclaimed. So he said, listen, I'm going to call Claudius and when he gets here, we'll clarify it. Did he ever call Claudius? Not that we know of. He's put it off. That's what po- politicians do, don't they? They just put it off. They don't want to upset the apple cart on either side. Verse 23, Paul was treated as innocent of. He said, give him some liberty. Make sure he's taken care of. Let his friends come and see him. Why, why would he do that? Because he knew he was innocent. Just like Jesus and Felix, just like Pilate, wanted to appease the Jews. He didn't want any trouble with the Jews. Verse 24 said Drusilla came in, who was a Jewess. By the way, Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Um, Herod Agrippa I 
was the um, grandson of um, the grandson of Herod the Great. So Drusilla's great grandfather tried to kill Jesus. Her father killed James and imprisoned Peter. Her uncle killed. Her great uncle killed. Uh, John the Baptist. So she comes from a good stock of family. <laughs> she was married to this king over in Syria. Felix, after he'd already had two wives, decided he liked her because she was apparently very good looking. So he seduced her and got her to become his wife. So that's what was going on with Drusilla. But Drusilla probably put Felix up to calling Paul because they were intrigued to hear. So... Felix called Paul. Paul began sharing the Gospel with him. Notice what he shares. He talked about righteousness, God's standard. He talked about self-control, our response to God's standard. And he talked about judgment, God's verdict about whether we keep His standard or not. And what did Felix do? He was alarmed. He said he trembled. He trembled. Some commentators believe the reason he didn't confess and repent right there and get baptized is because Drusilla was right there and she was just as evil as he was. And he knew, he knew to repent and confess that was a mistake. He didn't want her hearing that that was a mistake. Do we know guys like that? Do we know people that the thing that's holding them back from responding to the Gospel is because they want to hold on to something over here that they know is not right. Yeah, I know guys like that. And so he procrastinated. What, what does God's Word say? Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Remember in Hebrews chapter uh, 3? Don't harden your heart. When you hear the Gospel, don't harden your heart. Don't put it off. But Felix did. He was a corrupt politician. He just wanted a bribe. He knew Paul might have had some money. Um, he knew he'd brought money to Israel and uh, to Jerusalem. And so he just kept bringing him back, talking to him, hoping he would bribe him something. Did he? No. He didn't. Paul was there. How long was Paul there, by the way? Two years. I, I had a thought about this. Is there another place in Bible where in the Bible where somebody is mentioned they they spent two years in prison or they were there for an additional two years? You can think about Joseph. Yeah, Joseph. Why do you think Joseph stayed in prison for another two years? He took a little longer. Yeah. Yeah. What, what did Joseph say in response to the cupbearer? Um, and the baker, or when when he did the dreams, and he the guy, the one guy gets out, and what does he tell him when he leaves? Remember, God gave me that this dream, and remember that I serve God. Did he say that? No. Remember me. Because I'm here. Yes. And so he stayed there a little longer. It says two years. What had happened prior to Paul going to Caesarea? God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Is that the way Jesus responded? No. You think maybe God let him have two years there where he did nothing, no writing, no preaching, no nothing, to sit and just be there. 
can we have a tendency if we experience things in ministry and Paul had experienced heartache but he had seen churches plant too can you have a tendency to start going that's pretty good man you're doing pretty good you went through all this stuff all these people want to hear from you yeah I'm not saying Paul did that all I'm saying I just find it interesting the only two places in scripture where it says two years somebody was in prison is in Genesis chapter 41 and it said during that time that um, the Lord tested Joseph's character so we can't be tempted but we can be tested yes so Felix left him there for two years he was replaced by Festus because of the way he handled some riots later never trusted Christ that we know of but Paul no preaching no writing that's terrible for a guy like Paul Sometimes a Christian life, guys, has gaps. It has uh, periods of pain and silence where God's just deepening our faith. I, I, I want to read this, and then I know, I know we're a little over, but I want to read this to you. My friend, Tommy Nelson, out in Dallas, Texas, uh, one of his good friends and him wrote a book called How to Walk on Water When You Think You're Drowning. deals with depression. His friend lost his wife to cancer. His wife was pregnant, didn't want to go through chemo while she was pregnant, so she ended up giving birth to the child, and then she died. And my friend, or my, my friend's friend, really struggled with that. And they wrote this book. But they said this. It, he said, sometimes you just wake up, and you take the day God gave you, and you just work through it day by day. And, you know, that, that kind of, I, I, that kind of, when I first read it, it didn't really hit me that much. But then I started thinking about it, and it's true. You just kind of take the day God gives you, and you work through it day by day. You know, I think of guys at SWAT who have medical struggles. I've, I've, I've buried guys from SWAT who have gone through different uh, medical conditions watch their families. I've gone through guys at SWAT who have relational brokenness, financial brokenness, uh, financial collapse, young children with medical conditions that are not repairable, um, kids who go off the rails spiritually. I think of my friend Mike Perkins, who's a strong believer. He was in the FBI with me. His wife got a debilitating mental disease that basically in her brain, she went back in time to the brain of an infant that he walked her through that for six years. I think about all those. We wonder if we'll ever see happiness again. God often takes his children through places to places we can't control. And I was struck by uh, what Oswald Chambers wrote a long time ago. He says, have we really begun to walk the practical walk of grace? Do we know anything about the practice of pain? Watch what the Bible has to say about suffering and you will find the great characteristic of the life of the child of God is the power to suffer. And through that suffering, the natural is transformed into the spiritual. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He says, happiness is not a sign that we're right with God. Happiness is a sign of satisfaction, that's all. The majority of us can be satisfied on far too low a level. 
Jesus destroys every kind of satisfaction that is less than our delight in God. God, through circumstances and pain, shocks the smug satisfaction of self-interest out of us as we press on in His discipline of love. He also said sorrow burns up a great amount of shallowness. That's Oswald Chambers. You know, in Psalm 27, David understood this. And David wrote Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. One thing I've asked that I may what seek after that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to, life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. And he says this, I would have despaired if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So when you go through a difficult time, whether it's right now, whether it's next week, or whether it's a month from now or a year from now, hold on to the fact that God is good and He cares. He cares because, one, He gave you the gospel and He loves you enough to discipline you. So go to places like James 1 and Romans 5 to be reminded that even in the midst of the pain, He's just deepening, deepening you. Okay? Father, thank You for the reminder this morning that You care. I'm thankful for the Gospel. How many times, Lord, You've brought it before me to remind me that You love me enough to sacrifice Your Son for me. That's just... I, I can't imagine that. Thank You for that. And thank You for discipline. Thank You for deepening our faith. We don't like it when we go through it, but Lord, oh, <laughs> I don't want a shallow faith. I pray for each one of these men here as we go through whatever challenges we go through that you would help us to keep the right perspective. That our happiness would not be contingent upon our earthly blessings, but Lord, upon the blessings that you give us in you. That one day we will be with you forever and our sins are forgiven. We don't have to walk around in guilt or shame, but we walk around in the confidence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. We love you. Amen. Sorry, I went along. <laughs> the whole book, man. I mean, that's a whole chapter. That was a long.